0: Get a towel. Okay! Oh. Oh, wait a minute. I, I don't believe it. What's all they yelling about? What the... What's going on here? 25,000 twinkle lights. See what they doing far I have it the foggiest. the scene I thought about when the choir hit that note uh, last week. There is no Christmas to me without watching National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Now I do have to admit, it was very difficult to find a scene from the movie that was appropriate to play on Sunday morning. I did have to do some slight altering of words this morning uh, with a little video editing. As far back as I can remember, lights have been one of my favorite parts of Christmas much to my wife's chagrin because I don't put any lights on the outside of our house. Uh, From the energy-sucking 250 strands of lights, 100 individual bulbs per strand, for a total of 2,500 imported Italian twinkle lights, there's simply something magical about Christmas. I remember my mom used to put a single Christmas light in the windows of our home that I grew up in. Uh, This home in Madison, Mississippi has 250 inflatables, more than 100,000 LED lights, and a 23-foot tall animated Christmas tree. This next one, check this one out. This is a home in Illinois. Uh, There is more than a million LED lights, uh, 2,400 strobes, and a synchronized holiday music that goes along with a 10-foot nutcracker. I think we got one more up here, maybe, yeah. This is Clifton Mills in Ohio. It has 3.5 million lights that run along the nearby trees and riverbanks and gorge and the covered bridge. There's something about Christmas lights that fascinate me, And, and maybe... It, what's fascinating me is, is, is wondering how much money people spend on putting lights on their, on their houses. On top of that, what fascinates me is the power bill that comes in January after a very uh, festive December. Advent is a time of fascination. So for this, let's take a look at Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2. We're about to encounter a text of the great prophet Isaiah. Isaiah is going to tell of this, what we would call this Christmas gift. It's a kind of lengthy passage but I want you to pay close attention to the great joy that Isaiah is writing. Isaiah 9 2 reads, the people in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the deep darkness a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nations and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as a people rejoice at the harvest as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders and the rod of their oppressors. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning and will be fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace." Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. You see, Isaiah receives this extraordinary message from God to the people. A child is coming that will shatter the burdens of his people. The child will defeat the grueling burden of war. The child will be a wonderful counselor, almighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. This child will sit on David's throne. God has fulfilled God's promise, Isaiah is declaring. But there's a slight problem. Isaiah penned these words nearly 700 years before the child is to be born. Isaiah wrote this expecting What would happen next? And he's writing this in a time period of great devastation for Israel, the Babylonian captivity of the Hebrew people. We delved into this a couple weeks ago, understanding the context that, that people will soon be in exile in Babylon. He's living in the gloom and darkness of captivity. There is no reason for hope. There is no reason to believe that God is not forsaking God's people. And because of his circumstances, we know that Isaiah did not witness the fulfillment of these words that he spoke. He didn't experience the child and what the child would accomplish. He is not seeing the Prince of Peace take his throne. Instead, Isaiah does something very intentional he turns to wonder, he turns to the wonder of God and God's promises. And it's no small promise that God is going to deliver through Isaiah. God proclaims that God is bringing light into darkness. I would have been pumped if I was Isaiah to share these words with the people. They're rotting in exile for years and years. The people of Israel have been crumbled by the shadow of darkness in this form of Babylon. This is the empire that that murdered their friends and their families, that took advantage of their wives and daughters. They destroyed their cities and their towns, and they plundered their property. They had been shaken from the very foundation of their home and taken away into a foreign land. You have to turn to wonder, to believe that God is bringing light into that kind of darkness. God promises to deliver the people to increase their joy, but how? How? How is God going to shatter their oppressors and break the weapons of their enemies? How is God going to establish a kingdom forever and ever? And in the hell of this exile, Isaiah believed that God was going to do what God had promised. And so Isaiah turns to wonder. The Greeks had a fascinating mythology, no story more fascinating than that of Prometheus... He was a titan, and when the gods of Olympus fought and defeated the titans, Prometheus did not fight with his fellow titans, and so he was spared by the gods. And he was given this task of creating this new creature called humans, and Prometheus shaped man out of mud, and Athena breathed life into his clay figures, and Prometheus loved his creation. In fact, he loved them so much that Zeus despised him for his love for them, and so he took fire from man. Yet in his rebellion against the gods, Prometheus lit a torch from the sun and brought it down to give to man. And his eternal punishment from Zeus was that he would be chained to a boulder, and each day he would have his liver picked out by the buzzards, only for it to be regenerated and grown back the next day. Anybody hungry for lunch? No? For all the wonderful stories, the ancient Greeks had an awful image of the gods. Isaiah, who is not too far from being a contemporary of the formal writing of the Greco mythology, he gives another image of the one true God. In such poetic language, Isaiah's words invite us to just close our eyes and see a precious child that is to come. Isaiah would have been a rock star in his day to bring such a promise of hope and joy. But there's a big but in this passage, and it happens in verse 6 and 7. He declares this rest on a child. On a child? Only God would come up with such a thing as fulfilling these promises through a child. But Isaiah proclaimed that a child was coming, a a wonderful counselor. And for 700 years, the people waited and waited. And I've come to understand in reading Isaiah that he never stopped believing that God was going to fulfill God's promise. And for each generation that came and went, they waited in anticipation of a child. And the promises from Isaiah took this first step when an angel came to a teenage girl, a girl named Mary, and the angel announced, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Jesus. He will be great and called the Son of the Most High. And I love Mary's response. She simply says, let it be. I am your servant, let it be. And then we know in the story that the news comes to Joseph that Mary is pregnant and yet he is terrified by this and decides he's going to divorce, going to break this covenant in secret so she would not be ashamed. And yet a messenger comes to Joseph and fills him with wonder that God is truly fulfilling God's promises. And I can't even begin to imagine what was going through Mary and Joseph's head As they're holding in their arms this fragile and innocent baby, do you think they were afraid to hold him too tight or or too loose? Is he fragile or is he going to be okay? Was he too cold or was he too warm? Did he have all ten fingers and ten toes? Do you think he's hungry? Are we rocking him just too hard? And so in the manger story we find that Mary and Joseph also turn to wonder. Because it is a wonder that God wouldn't trust the task of raising a baby to a 14-year-old virgin and her carpenter husband. Do you remember those first few Christmases um, after you were newlyweds? It was the humble competition of outdoing each other to give the best gifts. Um, Jennifer and I shared two Christmases uh, together before uh, everything changed because on our third Christmas, we were no longer alone. We had a baby on the way. And I can remember 2010, like it was yesterday, Jennifer had this beautiful four-month baby bump, and then I had gained all the sympathy weight that came with it. And we each gave each other wonderful gifts that year, but we also knew that a greater gift was coming. And By Christmas of 2011, we had a six-month-old. And of course, at that age, um, pretty much kids aren't interested in any of the gifts you give them except the wrapping paper and the cardboard boxes. So new parents, don't waste your time on gifts this year. When I think about Christmas before Madison was born, and then I think about Christmas when she was there, it it draws me to this feeling of, of wonder. You see, the manger is a fascinating thing. Consider how... God can bring light into darkness. How God can deliver and establish this everlasting kingdom through a child. And the manger is surrounded with mystery and doubt for many. And if if we're able to take a step back and look at the Christmas story for the first time, we too might look at it with some cynicism. We would expect God to enter into human history by merely coming through the clouds because that seems more probable and believable than a virgin birth. Unbelievable and mythical and unrealistic, these are terms associated with people who view the virgin birth. Why would God not connect himself with a royal family? Why in the world would God break into human history through an illiterate teenage virgin whose fiance was a blue-collar worker from Nazareth, an insignificant town that can't even be found in the history books? And not only this, but why would he be born in such circumstances? Why in a place called Bethlehem, instead of a place like Rome or Jerusalem, why would there be a city where there's more likely more sheep in the population than the people to bring all the changes into this world? Why would God do something so unbelievable, so undesirable of a way, and yet what we turn to in Advent is the mystery and wonder of the manger? We were not created by a God who dances plainly before our eyes. Instead, we were designed and created by a God who is surrounded with beauty and mystery. And so we look at the manger with wonder. Last October, um, I visited uh, Denver on one of my site visits for my work with CBF, and Jennifer was able to go with me. And we flew from RDU to Chicago and from Chicago to Denver. And let me just go ahead and tell you, there is nothing more exciting than flying across Kansas and Nebraska. Flat cornfields as far as the eye can see. Sorry, no offense to any corn huskers or Jayhawks out there. There's a reason why you're living in Baton Rouge and not there. But about the time, we were about 30 minutes out from the airport, the, the, the pilot came on and told us we were about to arrive. And there we saw it, the Rockies. You see, from the plane, it was a fascinating thing because there out in the distance was literally the jetting out of these mountains across this flat prairie land. And what's fascinating about Denver is that it's, while it's a mile above sea level, it's flat. And so the city is skylined by the Rockies. You can see it up there. And one day we drove from Red Rock Canyon, these huge red rocks jetting out into the sky to then going to a place called Mount Falcon. One morning we left Denver. It was 40 degrees. We drove 25 minutes down the road and came to a place where it was 70 degrees in South Valley Park. In an hour or so, we had transitioned in different types of terrain. Prairie lands to Rockies, desert climate to chilly mountain terrain. Colorado shows us the wonder of God's creation. And yet what I want us to see is in the magnitude and wonder of this creator God is this advent of becoming flesh. We call this incarnation. And the incarnation is it's quite a fascinating thing because God could have chose any type of form, but God chose to humble God's self to take on our flesh and become just like us. And Jesus walked among us. He invited us into a new way of living. And Jesus didn't walk around with the self-righteous religious people. Jesus chose to walk around with the dirty, the outcast, the broken, and the marred by creation. And at this, Jesus made the lepers clean. He made the blind see. He turned the self-righteous, cold-hearted, into something more. And so we turn to this incarnation because it's quite bewildering. It's fascinating for us to consider. But I think the biggest thing I want us to see this morning of what should fascinate us about Advent is this. is God's love for us. Because what we see in the incarnation is not God walking among us, perpetuating this self-righteous religiosity. The wonder of God's love for us is a rebellious compassion. You might not think of him in these terms, but Jesus was a rebel. In fact, it's no coincidence that Jesus was crucified next to two what's called thieves or bandits. The truest translation is lestai, which means insurrectionist. Why would Jesus be crucified between two criminals for insurrection unless he was associated with such people? You see, Jesus chose to rebel against the religious framework of his day. The self-righteous temple system that would press people down and outcast people instead of drawing them in. Jesus was a rebel against the Roman occupation of its time because he was breaking down the relationship that bore between the religious leaders and the political puppets of the day. The dirty and disgusting lepers, outcasts by society, prostitutes and tax collectors were all one zealous away from a Pharisee throwing a stone at their face. The poor and the sick and the demon-possessed, these were the people that Jesus showed compassion to. Jesus was a threat to their day. And all this was to display God's love for us. It was all motivated by compassion. Jesus was turning the world, not upside down, but right side up. Jesus came bringing radical inclusion to all through God's fascinating love and grace for us. And so, this all begins with a child in a manger. That Christ loves you, and you, and you, and you, and yes, even the people in the balcony. Advent is a time to turn us to the wonder of God's love. How fascinating. Do you remember laying in bed at Christmas Eve, that nervous flutter in your stomach of wondering what you were going to open the next morning? It's funny looking back at some of those gifts that were so highly anticipated. I I remember one year I wanted so badly a a huffy uniform of Brett Favre's number four, uh, only to find the next morning that Mom and Dad for some reason gave me a puffy football uniform of Troy Aikman. I'm a lifelong hater of cowboys. I remember wanting a BMX bike so badly when I was nine, and Christmas gifts opening came and went. And then Mom and Dad surprised us an hour later by giving me this dream bike I'd ever wanted. I remember when I was 15 years old, I was convinced that I was going to wake up and I was going to have a new car outside just for me to drive when I turned 16. I was an idiot. <laughs> but when I neared 16, they bought me a 1988 Jeep Cherokee Pioneer, and I love that car. Christmas uh, turns children to wonder. As one author put it, children own wonder. It's ingrained in the purity of their hearts and expressed through their senses. What I want us to consider this morning is do we turn to the manger with fascination and wonder? Do we turn to Jesus with such fascination? That's what Advent is about, turning to the wonder of the reality of God coming to us. Isaiah embraced the wonder of what would be coming years past him. Mary and Joseph turned to the wonder of this fulfillment through them. The shepherds turned to wonder as they are the first to invited to come. Do we turn to wonder that God is bringing light into our darkness, hope into our despair, love into our brokenness? But the last thing I want us to see this morning is not only is God inviting us to turn to fascination, but God is also fascinated with us. Advent is a gift of fascination because we discover that it's not only the human story turning to wonder in God, but God turns to wonder in us. It is the great gift of faith that God had in Isaiah to bring this message. It is in great faith in Mary and Joseph that God entrusted this child to them. It is in great faith in you that God believes you can bring light into darkness of this world. God has faith in you that you can be a person of compassion and hope in a world that's so filled with trouble. God entrusts and has faith in you that you can be a person of joy and peace. Do you believe that God believes in you? One of the greatest gifts of Christmas is fascination. Can we come to believe and follow a God that entered into human history in such a way? And can we come to see that God also believes in you?